Hello all. Today we'll continue our deep dive into the case of Jack the Ripper. Grab yourself a cup of coffee, curl up on the couch, and get ready for some true crime. Last episode, I started by telling you a bit about Jack the Ripper. To recap, his gruesome acts of murder took place in London during 1888. Last time, we focused on his first known victim, Mary Nichols. She was the first of the five known victims of Jack the Ripper. Historians speculate the legitimacy of these five victims and the possibility he could have killed more than just these women. Today, we focus on his second victim, Annie Chapman, age 47. She's described as a woman with a bit of a nomadic life. At the time of her murder, everyone she interacted with and lived with said she was a wonderful and nice person. Her only real flaw was her love of alcohol. Chapman supplemented her meager income from crocheting and sewing with prostitution, as many women of this time did. She lived in a lodging home with other women, one of whom she had had a negative relationship with at the time she was murdered. A woman named Eliza Cooper loaned Annie a bar of soap and was angry because Annie refused to give it back, which caused tension to raise at the lodging home. The two women got into a scuffle at a pub one night, with Annie slapping Eliza and Eliza punching her in turn. They fought, and Annie walked away with more injuries than Cooper. She spent her last days bruised and in pain from a fight and in poor health. Her friend Amelia was one of the last people to see her alive on September 7th, and could tell with one look that Annie was gravely ill. She looked worse than the last time Amelia had spoken with her a few days prior, and Chapman complained of being too ill to do anything. She then passed Annie, still staying in the same, and heard her remark about pulling herself together to earn some money for lodging. Those were the last words anyone would hear Annie Chapman speak. On September 8, 1888, a man named John Davis, an older gentleman and resident of 29 Hanbury Street, came downstairs opened a door in a dark passageway, and saw before him a nightmare. He stumbled into the streets, begging for someone to help him, startling two young men walking along the street. They followed him nervously to the passageway where Annie Chapman's body lay, unconscionably disfigured. Annie's head was turned toward the house, and her clothing was amuck. Her skirt was pulled up to expose her striped stockings. A scarf was tied around her neck, where it had been slashed by the killer. Some people claimed the killer tied it there to keep the head from rolling away, but that was later proven false. It was just something to hype up the situation. The way her body was positioned made the onlookers believe that she had struggled a great deal to cover her throat and save it. After a few moments of silence, the shock slowly subsiding, the men hurried off to get the police. One of the young men was so shocked by what he'd seen, he had grabbed a drink to calm his nerves. The other young man found a constable, but when he said what happened, the constable said he could not leave his post. A ridiculously stupid answer. Again, dear listeners, let me say the police are pretty useless in this whole case, so don't expect anything different from them. The man was so baffled by the constable's response, he later filed a complaint with the police only be told that the officer was right to stay at his post. Honestly, I'm not shocked anymore when I read about how absolutely mental these so-called police officers were. I just expected at this point. Davis finally got the 
attention of a senior officer who would listen. So Davis went to a police precinct to get someone who's more important attention on the matter. And this was the only way they could actually get someone to come look at a dead body. Moments after the conversation, an inspector rushed to the scene. Inspector Joseph Chandler, so different from the first inspector from the first murder, forced his way through spectators at the scene and made his way to the body. He ordered the vicinity to be cleared of onlookers and sent an officer to fetch a doctor of the area. The inspector also retrieved something to cover the body until the doctor could arrive. Dr. Baxter Phillips arrived at the scene and immediately confirmed that the woman was beyond medical help. He made some precursory observations of the body, such as the positioning of the limbs and the depth to which her throat had been slit. It was later discovered during an autopsy that her womb had been removed from her body, possibly as a trophy or maybe as a statement about fertility or womanhood and the killer's distaste for it. This is just me starting to speculate here, but we'll get into more detail about Jack the Ripper himself in a later episode. The body was delivered to the morgue. Only this time, they were not going to let anyone wash down and strip the body. The inspector thought he'd made this very clear when he arrived and explained what was to happen. His orders were, of course, not followed, because two hours after his departure from the morgue, he and the doctor were angry to find Annie Chapman's body had been given the same treatment as Mary Nichols had received. She was stripped and hosed down, washing away important clues or possibly any evidence that her body may have had on it. This is the second time that this has happened, the second time we've seen this incompetency and not following orders. Even though her body had been disturbed, an autopsy was still performed. Upon further examination, the doctor determined her dwindling health would have killed her within a few months. Her brain and lungs were in an advanced state of disease. Now, there is no specification as to what this disease was, but I'm assuming it might have been some type of cancer or lung disease because Annie Chapman had had a pre-existing lung condition that she had been taking medication for. They actually found the pills for this near her body. An investigation was launched into her whereabouts the day of her murder. Once they identified her body, a woman named Elizabeth Long stated she saw Chapman conversing with a man in a dark outfit not long before her death, and that Chapman said yes to a request he'd made of her. Long was possibly the last person to see her alive, and she also possibly saw Chapman's killer as well. She stated that he had been wearing a dark outfit. The doctor who performed the autopsy explained that the weapon used was a sharp knife, which was used for everything in the murder, even the removal of the womb. He went on to explain how there was a basic knowledge of surgical practice evident due to the fact that the womb was removed in an orderly fashion. Basically, the killer knew what they were doing, and who else besides a doctor or a surgeon would possess that type of knowledge of the human body? Annie Chapman had also been disemboweled and her throat deeply slit, just like Mary Nichols had been. This is something that will become a bit of Jack the Ripper's M.O., disemboweling his victims. We'll see it more. The doctor claimed only someone with knowledge of human anatomy could have removed her womb in such a fashion, just as I had stated before. But some experts refuted this statement. They claimed the killer wasn't someone with that knowledge. They 
had believed a few things. Um, maybe he could have been a butcher or someone who uh, worked at the mortuary and actually had stolen her organ. They believe mortuary staff may have stolen it and taken advantage of her body. It was common for organs to be stolen and sold for use as surgical specimens. If you think back to this time period, it was also the time period where they would quite frequently steal bodies and cadavers to be used in medical practice lessons as well. This was still happening at this time. They also didn't have an accurate time of death for Chapman because there were many statements and pieces of testimony where people claimed to have seen her when the medical examiner reasoned that she was already dead. So basically, the medical examiner said that she had died at 4.30 that morning, but people had claimed to have seen her at 5 or even 5.30. And the reason why one of the statements is so accurate to the possibility is because the woman who saw Annie Chapman speaking with that man when she said yes to his statement. She had known it was 5.30 in the morning because she heard the tolls of the bell of a clock in the area. So she knew exactly what time it was. So back then, they didn't have accurate knowledge that we do now, our accuracy in telling, in we, we know the exact time of death um, and such factors like the weather and how she died made it appear she was dead longer than she actually was. So her blood loss could have been a factor in making her seem like she was um, farther along in rigor mortis, uh, things like that. After Chapman's death, a letter was sent out where the writer had claimed responsibility for her murder and dubbed themselves Jack the Ripper presumably because they didn't care for the name that the news had given them. Um, amongst the evidence that was found near Annie Chapman's body, there was actually a leather apron found in the area that was stained with blood and looked like it had been washed out in a sink. So the media, or the news outlets of that time period, started dubbing this killer as Leather Apron and... <laughs> I mean, I get it. You know, you don't want to be dubbed as Leather Apron. It doesn't sound very cool or charming or anything like that. A lot of serial killers want a cool name to go along with what they do, and they want the recognition to go to them. So um, it's even, look at what happened with uh, the Zodiac Killer. He wanted to be recognized as the Zodiac Killer, so he sent those letters to the police during the time of, well, they sent. We still don't know anything about uh, the Zodiac Killer. could have been anyone. They, um, they sent those letters, those encrypted letters, where they signed themselves as the Zodiac Killer to let people know, this is what I want to be called. So Jack the Ripper did the same thing. He sent a letter to the police, to the news outlets, and he wanted to be called Jack the Ripper. The name Jack the Ripper became infamous after this, and this would not be the end of his reign. This was only his second known victim, and we will be getting to the next victim in our next episode of Coffee and Crime. Thank you all for listening to the second installment of this six-part Jack the Ripper series on Coffee and Crime. I know it may seem like these episodes are shorter, but there's a reason why I'm separating them. I feel like you cover more information and I feel like if I shoved it all together, it would be way too long. <laughs> this whole case has been a fascination of mine and the reason why I'm interested in true crime. 
I remember watching Jack the Ripper uh, documentaries when I was younger and being interested in the whole idea of this whole uh, true crime and um, serial killers and all these things. Fascinated with researching it. I have so many books on the topics. It's just very interesting to me. I hope I'm doing it justice with these episodes. If you um, have any more opinions that you'd like to tell me about how I'm doing, if you have any advice for me, feel free to hit me up on Twitter. And for more updates on the episodes, please follow me on Twitter. And you can find me at Coffee and Crime Podcast or CNC Podcast on Twitter. The next episode will probably come out, um, I'd say, Saturday or Sunday, with time permitting. because I am quite busy. This episode was supposed to come out yesterday, but my editor and I actually had a lot going on yesterday, so we had to push it to today. Uh, The next episode will center on the third of the five victims of Jack the Ripper. I hope to see all of you then. Until next time. (laughs) 